0: to Acts uh, chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, we're going to be in verse, verses 17 and following, uh, Acts, Acts chapter 20, and while you're, you're turning there, I'll set the table a bit for our, for our passage today. It's been almost 20 years since Holly and I um, took a, a dream vacation. Um, my, my 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, my brother uh, was, was getting married and he was going to marry a woman whose parents had promised their daughter that she could get married in Maui, Hawaii. And so being the uh, faithful brother and sister-in-law that we are, Holly and I sucked it up and went 10 days in Maui when we were a mere 25 years old, 26 years old. Man, tough times. Um, and of course, uh, you. Uh, we had many, many wonderful experiences, as you might expect you would have as a newly married couple on a second honeymoon, basically, uh, in, in Hawaii. And um, one of those uh, experiences that we had there that while we'll never forget, we still talk about it, um, was a dining experience we had at this restaurant called uh, humahumas. Now it's named after uh, the state fish of Hawaii which is the reef trigger fish but everything has a Hawaiian name there. And do you know what the Hawaiian name the state fish is in Hawaii? Can you say it in Hawaiian? Does anybody want to pull this off? No? Nobody? JJ's got it. Let's hear it. Yes! That's right. I will, I will repeat it for you but J- he nailed it. Humahuma, nuka nuka kuapua'a. That is the triggerfish. Um, so that that dining experience was amazing for for two for two reasons: the food and the experience surrounding the food. By that, what I mean is, what was eaten was amazing, and how it was experienced was amazing. So when you, when you the combination of those two things, the food itself and the environment in which it was uh, experienced made for a potent and unforgettable experience that Lord willing, Lord willing, we will one day duplicate. So I wonder if you've had a dining experience like that where both of of those things were present and it just made for perfection. I also wonder if you've had a dining experience where one of those things was present. I wonder if you've walked all fancied up into a really beautiful restaurant, gotten a great table, with a great view and a great waiter ordered something that sounded and maybe even looked amazing. And when you put it in your mouth, you thought, dear Lord, what have I done? (laughs) Have you ever had that experience? I had that experience uh, in the castle, in the center of Magic Kingdom. Cinderella's castle dining experience was terrible. (laughs) Don't Ever, ever do that to you or your child. Just don't do it. It's, the, it's like you think, I'm going to Cinderella's castle. And you go in there, and it is like Bob Evans. And, which is fine if you know you're going to Bob Evans, right? Like, that's fine. But you think you're going to Cinderella's castle, and you don't. Anyway, that's, all, that's not in the script. I, I wonder if you've been to a total dive... And gotten the most amazing meal you could have ever had. Has that ever happened to you? So I was in Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas, and was uh, working the Southern Baptist Convention. And boy, the I, walk, I had to walk in the dead of June. It was 110 degrees, and I was dressed like this. And I had to walk five blocks from the convention center uh, over about four o'clock in the afternoon, four thirty in the afternoon, over to the to the hotel. Um, And, you know, just drenching sweat, and I'm on my phone trying to find a, a place to eat that I can just eat and get in the air conditioning. And the Internet was bombing me with recommendations for this burger joint that was on my walk, on the way, on my walk to the hotel. And when I got to it, I had hesitations. It looked like a bomb went off in this building, we're like, how could this place have possibly passed inspection, much less provide the burger that this place, that the Internet is telling me that it's going to provide? Let me tell you, it provided the burger that I still haven't forgotten. It was incredible. So you, you feel the, the the tension there, what you have and how it's presented. What is presented and how it's presented. Now, let's apply that same tension to words. What you say and how you say it. What is the relationship between what you need to say and how you should say it? Or, so well, let me ask you this way. What is more important? What you say or how you say it? Or maybe that's a false dichotomy. Maybe those are both always equal in their importance think about it this way if you can say it in an email do you really need to have the meeting or maybe what you need to say requires that that really needs to be in person maybe the tone is hard to infer from an email so you need to have that meeting in person that's really what's required you see you can feel the tension right the relationship between what needs to be said and how it should be said So with that in mind, with that tension in mind, I'd like for you to stand with me in honor of God's word. We're going to read Acts 20, verses 17 through 24. Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, "'Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, "'and during the trials that came to me "'through the plots of the Jews. "'You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you "'anything that was profitable "'or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. "'I testified to both Jews and Greeks "'about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. "'And now I am on my way to Jerusalem,' compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself, and my purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seen. Now does that passage sound like something that you'd like to hear in person or is it something that you'd like to get in an email? What's the tone? What's the way? Do you think that the Ephesian church, that the elders were glad to hear this in person from Paul? Or do you think they thought, you know, you could have just sent a letter? Lord knows, Paul, you love to write letters. You could have just sent that. But the fact that Paul, you see this in verse 17, from Miletus, he's sent to Ephesus. See, Paul is sailing and he's actually gone past Ephesus and he's gone 20 miles south and he's actually in control of the ship and its passage and he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's eager by the leadership of the Holy Spirit to get Jerusalem, but he gets past Ephesus And in thinking about them, this is the way I'm I'm conceiving it in my mind. In thinking about them, he orders the ship to pull into Miletus, into the port, 20 miles south, orders the ship to pull in, and he sends messengers 20 miles north by land to summon the elders of the church of Ephesus and to bring them back with him to the ship so he could personally tell them this message. And the fact that he would go to that end to tell them what he has What we have here that Luke has recorded, the fact that he would go to those ends tells you the weight, tells you the importance of this word both for them and for us now. This passage is Paul's way of saying, here's how it looks to serve the Lord in the church. This is what it's like to be an elder. It's Paul saying, this is what I want you to do. I'm never going to see you again. I'm going to write you, but I'm never, you're never going to see each other again. Here's what you elders need to do. Here's what you need to know you're getting into when you lead this church. Here's what Blackman's elders and pastors need to be like. Here's what the people at Blackman need to pray and understand and expect about their leaders. Here is what those who aspire to lead in the church need to know that they are getting into. That's what we're reading today. And one of the things that's really cool about this passage is that Paul is not a consultant. Paul lived and did ministry in Ephesus for three years, as we learned in Sunday school today. So Paul has to be honest about his counsel. And because of the way that Paul lived among the elders in those years, he is effectively saying to them in this passage, do as I say and as I have done. That the words and the advice and the counsel that I'm giving you are validated by my own life. And I've come to see you in person because I love you and the weight of what I have to say is just that important. So it's a, it's a passage that effectively describes for us what it means to serve the church. Look at with me at verse Verse 18 because we're going to talk about what it means to serve the Lord in the church. Verse 18, Paul says, when the Ephesians, when they came to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. And here's the phrase, serving the Lord. The first thing that Paul wants to say about his work is that he was serving the Lord. Now that's, Sounds like a really a simple idea. It's like until you just kind of pause and think about it a minute. What is it that comes to mind when you really ponder and turn around the word in your mind? Serving, serving, doing what you're told comes to mind. Lowliness comes to mind. Submissiveness comes to mind. Compliance comes to mind. Doing what's asked of you comes to mind. So that's serving. But then you have this other phrase, the Lord, capital L. The Lord. And what comes to mind when you think of the, the Lord, right? You think of power, you think of authority, you think of rule, you think of control, you think of sovereignty, you think of majesty, you think of holiness, you think of providence. So when you put these two words together, serving the Lord, you have this unusual, okay, to, from the perspective of the world, it's unusual. It's not, it's core to, to the Bible, but you have this, this unusual Leadership style that gets created, right? So you're adding lowliness and submissiveness and compliance, and submission to authority and power and rule and, and majesty. You get you get characteristics of leadership that come from the fact that the leader is first a servant, and then you get some characteristics that come from the fact that he, the, that the one that the leader is serving is serving the Lord. And so when the Lord tells a leader that he wants him to do a certain thing or her to do a certain thing, then that person is going to do it and they're going to do it with confidence and they're going to do it with the authority because they're serving, but they're serving the Lord. You see how this dynamic works, like it's interesting. So if you put these things together, you picture what it would look like in the elders in Ephesus at this time. Because everything that follows in verses 18 and following all the way pretty much in through the rest of chapter 20 um, is Paul's way of spelling out what it looked like for him to serve the Lord in Ephesus. And it's, and it's both descriptive and prescriptive for us. It's, it gives us a window and an insight into how leadership was working in the church and how Paul went, thought about how he was doing what he's doing. But it's also prescriptive. It's a manual for us and what we can expect in we're leading and serving in the, in the church. Now, I've got, you know, 15 minutes. So because uh, I love you, and we have children crawling all over us for the most part, we're only going to look at verse 19. Okay, and I want to show you three characteristics of serving the Lord. Can I serve you in that way with with that one verse? Three traits, if you will, three qualities of serving the Lord. Number one, humility. Look at verse 19. I was with you, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. The first thing that Paul has to say is that being a servant of the Lord means being humble. What do I mean by humility? We talked about this not too long ago from 1 Peter 5, but let me, let me apply it a little bit more practically to um, this, this context. Humility is a feeling Or an acknowledgement toward God that He has absolute rule and authority over your life. That Paul's, what Paul means here is that he did his job believing, serving the Lord, right? That He could do, that God could do anything with Paul that God pleased to do, that pleased God to do. He has absolute authority over Paul. And that's what it means for us. God can do with me and God can do with you as he pleases and that he has absolute authority to tell you what is best for you. And you know you're humble when you're good with that. You know when humility is making inroads in your life where you go, I, I accept that. I trust that. Humility is a spirit of sheer submissiveness to the Lord. Jeremiah eighteen five and 6, Jeremiah uses the Lord uses this metaphor of Jeremiah. He says... if if you understand that you are clay and that God is the potter and clay is in the potter's hands, you understanding that he is making you into what he desires to make you into, that's when you know you're in a humble state. That's humility. Now, you could argue in a way that the story of the Bible is one in which the clay is always wanting to become the potter. It's like story after story after story of rebellion. And... Thankfully, the potter never relinquishing his role, but always lovingly and painstakingly working to form a people and a, or a person into his liking that he desires for his good and for his glory. But the fact of the matter is, we're not in charge of our lives. You're not in charge of your life, much less anybody else's. You got that person you're trying to like lead and, and, and guide a little bit, that's all good and right. I mean, I'm talking about biblical leadership is. But the heart, the root of leading other people is coming to understanding that you're not in charge of your life or theirs. That God is. He is the potter and we are the clay. And we can come to that. It helps, it helps to get to that place if we can understand that, that God being the potter is making us into something that is both beautiful and useful. When I, when I get to the place where I, when I can trust God that no matter what is going on in the circumstances, the relationships in my life, that he is doing something that is, that is both beautiful and useful, I'm becoming a more and more humble person. And what do I mean by beautiful and useful? Here's what I mean. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I made a, I made a terrible mistake. I, I bought a really beautiful car. Really beautiful car. Uh, German engineered, not Audi, BMW, German engineered, VW, Chattanooga, German engineered, right? Uh, it was technically used at 800 miles on it, but for, it was, which means it's new. I mean, so, but like 30 days into getting this beautiful car, I regretted it completely, entirely. Super sleek, low to the ground, great acceleration, great handling, no wind noise, no road noise, very little engine noise—just the kind you really like to hear. Great leg room for my six foot five, you know, mammoth children in the back. And if you've got, but here's—I mean, it was awesome. It was, y'all, I threw it and until you hit a bump. And by a bump, I mean a pebble. If you hit anything in the road that you could visually see was going to be a problem in the road. Smallest, much less anything significant. If you hit anything, your teeth would rattle because the cabin of the car felt every single thing on the road. And as it turns out, I live on a road that is not really smooth. So I would bought this really beautiful car, but I'd not bought a very useful car. So in Jeremiah's day, to go back to his pottery example, pottery was both. It was useful, but it was beautiful. It was practical, sturdy, but it was also art. It had a creator, right? So when God says in this metaphor, uh, calling attention to the potter, he's saying that he is forming themselves into something that is both beautiful and useful. So if you go back to Acts 20 when we understand that God is in charge of our lives and that God is in authority over us, then He's making us into something beautiful and useful. Humility becomes a quality that we more easily pursue. And over time, we recognize that humility is not an occasional quality that we just have to swallow our pride for this moment just to get through it. It becomes the defining quality of who we are as a leader, as a person. Now, so that's, that is, so when Paul says serving the Lord with humility, he means first that in relationship to God, he is submitting to the sovereignty and providence and the, the, the potterness of God, that God is in charge of his life. But that has a relational impact. Paul's not just, when he talks about humility, he's not just talking about how he submitted to the authority of God. He's also talking about how it impacted his relationship with the Ephesians. And with the people that he had ministry to in Ephesus, right? That's the relational result of this. Because if you're leading, that inherently means that there are followers and there's a relational component to what you're doing. So he's not just talking about humility before God. He's talking about humility in relationship to other people. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word meekness to define this. It's when you realize more and more every day just how indebted you are to God and how what he's doing with you is better than what you could do to yourself, that naturally has the effect of meekness in your relationship with other people. It's the opposite of feeling that everybody around you owes you something. They owe you an ear, they owe you some time, they owe you the, oppor- you know, the to listen to all the things that you think you know, etc. It's um, the more, let me put it this way. The more we are driven by what others owe us rather than by what we owe them, the less humble or meek you are. But the more we are driven by, um, by the grace and sovereignty of God in the gospel, the more we treat others the same that God has treated us. And that's called meekness. That's called humility in relationship to other people. So... You see what Paul is saying? If you're going to serve the Lord, if you're going to be in the church, if you're going to do anything remotely like that, just understand that to serve the Lord means to submit to Him and that has the resulting impact in your relationships with people in the church, to serve them, to be, to be meek, to be humble. Number two, humility, verse 19, serving the Lord means tears. Paul says, I was serving the Lord with all humility and then with tears. Tears. What emotions trigger tears? What emotions trigger tears? Sadness, of course. Happiness can trigger tears. Pain can trigger tears. Tears are less about the emotion itself and more about the intensity with which we feel those emotions, right? I was at a football game in New Orleans, the Saints. And the the Saints were destroying the Washington Redskins, praise be. And it was and but it was also the day that Drew Brees broke the total passing yards in that game. And uh, in in that in that moment, the the game stopped And because it's like it's incredible, right? That this this guy has done this thing, especially this little guy. He's done this incredible thing, and uh, and because he's been in New Orleans the entire career and everybody around me was like, you know, season ticket holders for 40 years, there was so much joy and enthusiasm that grown men in their 60s of every ethnicity you can imagine were hugging each other in tears, crying because Drew Brees broke 190,000 yards or whatever it is that he wrote, right? It's not about sadness. It's not about joy. It's not about pain. It's about the intensity with which we feel those emotions. Now, some of us are more prone to feel intensity of emotions than others. So, put your money down. Who's more likely to cry today, Weston or me? <laughs> My, who's putting your money on Weston? Raise your hand. Nobody's putting it on me, right? Unless you're going to hit me with a hammer outside or something like that. Like maybe there's, there's just there's just something about it, right? But that doesn't change the fact that it's more emotional intensity than any one emotion. So the question is, look at the text, right? What brought Paul to tears? Skip down to verse 31 in chapter 20. Paul says there, Therefore, I want you to be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning, interesting word, each one of you with tears. With tears. So in that case... Paul saying that his tears were tears of yearning for their faith, yearning for their holiness, yearning for their doctrinal purity because of the intensity with which they would be attacked for those things. So Paul did his ministry with tears. So if you take verse 31 and th- with that kind of motive and you combine it over here with verse 19 that Paul actually defines his ministry, he marks his ministry as one with tears. If you put those things together, we can say two things about we can say two things about what it means to do to do ministry. We can say number 1 that Paul wasn't a crybaby. Which t- this actually came up in Sunday school this morning. You read Acts and you read Paul's letters. It is not fair to conclude that Paul was emotionally weak who just teared up anytime he didn't get his way. That is not Paul. But Paul did have many tears because serving the Lord means getting intensely involved in other people's struggles. And tears are inevitable, if not more frequent than you would expect otherwise. Uh, Paul does not... Have room for emotionally detached ministry. He he does not have room in his heart to detach himself personally from the ministry that he's doing. Paul's not a professional. Paul is a pastor, which means he's in deep, profound relationship with the people to whom he is yearning. And teaching and instructing and admonishing and loving and serving. That's gonna, that's in his heart. It's, so it's an emotionally intense thing. So there are tears. There are serving the Lord means humility before God, it means meekness before others, it means tears alongside others. And then number three, trials. How do we learn humility and meekness? How do we get tears? trials. So Paul says in verse 19, I served the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plot of the Jews. So in our our basement of our home is rented out as a short-term rental apartment on like Airbnb, things of that nature. And One of the things that Holly and I quickly learned about this endeavor is that guests almost chiefly treasure very clear expectations. Very clear expectations, which is why in our listing, you will see things like your bedroom is under our kitchen. And while we make every effort to be as quiet as we possibly can on the floor above you, you will hear us getting ready for school, eating breakfast, doing all the things required to get kids out the door between 645 and 730 in the morning. If this is a problem for you, do not pay to stay in my basement, right? Right? <laughs> Because, and because guests read that and they come in full knowledge and acceptance of these conditions, when they experience them, they are better with them than they would been if they had been surprised. Like they had put this money now. He didn't mention the fact that his six-year-old is up there dropping oat squares all over the floor or whatever, right? But I do. And so when they pay, they're, they're, more, they're happier with the, the experience. So the same principle is, is at work here in the text. That's what Paul is saying. Paul was reminding the elders about all of his trials in Ephesus because the elders in Ephesus are going to have more than a few trials along the way. It wasn't just Paul, you know, laying the foundation and tying the rebar, that's the hard part. Now you guys get to have the easy part of doing church now that I've done all the hard part. No, 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 no. This wasn't prelude. This is the life. It is trials. It is tears. It will humble you. It will make you meek. It will make you more and more like Jesus, is what Paul is trying to say. And the tragic thing is, if you skip down to verse 29 and 30 of the same chapter, Paul says that these trials will come from within their own number. Like the elders sitting right there in that huddle. Some of you, some of you will become enemies of truth and the righteousness. Paul's realistic. He paints clear expectations so they can know what it is they were getting into. And Paul says that will be a great, a great trial. So, if we've seen in this text that serving the Lord means humility, meekness, it means tears, and it means trials. So, let me give you very quickly something practical and something beautiful. Something practical. I would just I would just say this this puts in my heart and in our heart a mindset that I mean just to over and over again if you understand that if, that you're serving the Lord and not trying to build a kingdom unto self, this will have the effect of opening your mind and opening your heart to whatever God wants to do with you. We're talking about this in Sunday school today, like. When you, when you get to the place and you can understand that anything is on the table for God to do with you and you can step into that, that's humility. That's, that's meekness. And it's going to cost you something. Tears and trials. But, but that is a practical takeaway from this text. It is to, have, to practice the mindset of what does God want to do with this? What does God want to do with that? What does God want to do with this? And allow his sovereignty and his spirit to lead and guide and teach. If you are in ministry, have been in ministry, and you've shed many, many tears, I want you to be comforted because you are in good company. You're on the right path, not the wrong path. I think too many times we associate success and God's blessing in ministry with the absence of pain, with the absence of suffering, with the absence of tears, with the absence of trials. You know God is in it if you didn't have to suffer. Paul says, You know God is in it if you are serving the Lord humility, suffering tears, and suffering trials. That's the biblical model. I don't think I could have done the in like six months ago in the COVID thing. I think that would have been really, really bad. Now I can do it. All right. Number three, trials. If you were in a trial and we are almost always in one or coming out of one or going to one, like we're all in a process of that. Don't forget the word of James. Count it joy, brothers, when you fall into trials, knowing that it is testing your faith and it's producing steadfastness, which will have its full effect, making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does that sound like a state you want to have in your life? Yes. How do you get there? Trials. Trials. So those are some very practical things. But then there's something beautiful about this passage. Serving the Lord, as Paul calls it, is we have. it is often equated in our culture, we, it's Christian culture, we use this phrase a lot. We say, it's being the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, Trevin Wax just recently wrote, don't forget what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus. Right. This, this passage of, of humility, this passage of tears, this passage of trials, it points me to the hands and feet of Jesus, who humbled himself, leaving heaven, coming to earth, living the life of, of, that I could not live and paying the price that I could not pay through many tears and through many trials. Humility, tears, and trials, they define the ministry of Jesus. They, this, this passage points us to the one who did all of that for you and for me. So I would say, believe. Believe this. Give your life to him. And your life will look a whole lot more like his and you will be a whole lot more like him. And you will you will find a wholeness and you will find a wellness and you will find a peacefulness that, that only the gospel can provide. That's, that's this passage today. Let's pray together in response. Uh, Father, thank you for for the stories of Paul's journeys and for his words and for his letters that in, in narrative form and in uh, this diary kind of form, you know, this, this, this transpondence kind of way, we can get a picture for what it meant to lay one's life down for the gospel. And, and Father, thank you for not sugarcoating these stories for these thanks for not making this a marketing piece in the Bible. Thank you for making it real. We we have clear expectations about what it means to serve the Lord. There are glorious moments. There are joyful moments. There are moments of abundance and there are pictures and, and experiences that remind us of what heaven's going to be like all throughout ministry. And Paul had some of those in Ephesus. But when he looked back at the totality of his ministry, he saw humility and, and meekness and tears and trials. And so, Father, we're, we want to be really cognizant of that as we give ourselves to serve the Lord in and through the local church. So help us to come boldly with full awareness, counting the cost, knowing where, it's, knowing where you're going to lead, and what it's going to cost, living with humility, accepting the tears and the trials, being made perfectly complete through them and by the gospel. This is our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.